What's up, everybody? This is Garrett. I'm the producer for both Empire and Bell Curve. And today, all of the hosts are gone. So I'm taking over. Jason just got married. Congratulations, man. Uh, and the rest are all traveling. So I'm hosting this episode, and I brought on a few of the team members from BlockWorks Research. I think it's a great episode. A little bit selfish because I'm in it. But if you're interested, give it a listen. And if not, we'll see you next time. Adam's always been advertised as this base currency of the Cosmos ecosystem. But up until now, like they hasn't really seen how that vision was going to form. We just kind of like could see, okay, there's definitely the potential for this to exist. Uh, but these updates are really like lining out exactly what that roadmap is going to look like. All right, everyone, welcome to another roundup. This week, we're doing a little something different. I don't think you've met me before. My name is Garrett. I'm the producer for both Empire and Bell Curve, and the parents are gone. So we've had to go with something a little different. So instead, we have Sam, Dan, and Matt from the BlockWorks Research team. So guys, welcome to the show. Appreciate it. What's up, Garrett? How you doing? Doing great. I've been complaining about my complexion in this room. So if you're watching on YouTube, I am prettier than this. But... uh. Look, we, we want to get started. There's a lot of interesting news that's been going on this week. I think the biggest thing that's come out is the Cosmos or Atom 2.0 um, update. They just had a big Cosmos um, conference the other day. I think that's really been in the narrative the last few weeks. It's been one of the only assets that's really held up. So um, Sam, Dan, Matt, whoever wants to take off, I'm just interested. What was this update and what should we pay attention to? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you correctly highlighted that recent Atom strength we've seen. Um, you know, Atoms looked really good relative to most other L1 assets, including ETH recently. Uh, there's been definitely some uh, some bid coming in, likely in anticipation of this news. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, the biggest developments here is really the upgraded tokenomics for Atom itself. Uh, and then kind of how that all fits in with the IBC ecosystem. So uh, a new white paper got released that was uh, detailed by some of the core devs. Uh, and some other community members from the Cosmos Hub team uh, that kind of like was around since the original days and helped kind of innovate what the IBC ecosystem has has become. Um, and so, you know, if you kind of like take a step back here and say like, where did Cosmos, the Cosmos Hub start uh, the, as well as the Cosmos ecosystem and where is it in, like, where did it kind of trend to? You know, so step one, they kind of built out the original infrastructure, which is the Tendermint consensus mechanism uh, and the Cosmos SDK. This made it like really straightforward to build an entire blockchain from scratch. Um, and then step two is kind of like, can now you have a world of uh, app specific blockchains, but how do they all communicate? So they had to build out the interchain block, uh, inter blockchain communication system, the IBC rails to allow uh, the communication and value exchange occur between all these app specific change chains. Um, and then step, step three was kind of this uh, recent innovation called interchain accounts. Uh, and this now kind of like boosts the uh, compatibility and composability between these blockchains. So uh, with interchain accounts, uh, chain A can change the state of uh, an, like a contract on chain B without the user having to like move funds from chain A to chain B. So this really helps like the UX and flow from a user perspective because I can just have all my assets on one chain and still be uh, communicating with a second chain through these uh, through IBC and interchain accounts. Uh, so that kind of brings us to where we are today, where, you know, uh, Yusuf Amrani uh, put this in a tweet thread he had kind of regarding all the updates, but he's kind of, he called the infrastructure is ready and the IBC is the golden standard for cross messaging. Uh, so this really kind of just like puts uh, Adam right in the right spot uh, for these the major developments that we've seen uh, with Adam 2.0. Uh, and then the inclusion of these two new features, the interchain scheduler and the interchain allocator. Uh, first, I'll hit the kind of the new monetary policy that they've discussed. 
Um, you know, maybe we can put this uh, up on the screen here. Okay, how do I put something on the screen? That's a good question. This is <laughs> you go for it, dude. Dan, check that out. While uh, I think I think a good thing to remember is like Adam has been around for a long time, and it's supposedly like it's been sold as the asset of the Cosmos ecosystem. And I think that's it's been a little bit of a problem because you have these other asset chains, these app specific chains, and they're like, no, this is the Cosmos ecosystem. It's not Adam. And there's been this confusion. And I've actually heard Tarun in the past say that. Atom is the Dogecoin of the Cosmos ecosystem. So I think this 2.0 update, which you're about to go into, is changing Atom from a meme coin to actually show that there's some type of value accrual. Sorry, I was just going to say there's also like a nomenclature, nomenclature issue there, right? So referring to Cosmos, uh, like referring to Cosmos Hub or Atom as Cosmos is kind of an issue because, you know, anyone can go deploy their own layer one blockchain with the Cosmos SDK. So it's, it gets a little confusing. Like the Cosmos ecosystem isn't really like an Ethereum ecosystem where all the dApps are actually built on top of the same L1. It's kind of completely different. So people are probably betting on Adam thinking, oh, I'm betting on the Cosmos ecosystem. But, you know, that's not necessarily true. Although uh, some of the recent updates probably make it a little more true, in my opinion. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah, right on, Matt. Definitely agree with you there. And so if you look at this uh, image we have up on the screen for those following along on YouTube, uh, this dashed line is the old cumulative is issuance schedule. And then the black line, the solid line, is the uh, the new proposed one. So you can see the linear increase uh, in in emissions that the old model was using. And that, you know, obviously isn't very sustainable uh, going looking out into the future, right? You're, you're massively diluting the, the current holders of the token by printing more. Uh, and so the new model, in short, like really aims at lowering that rate. Uh, so in the long term, you're kind of trending towards uh, like a 1% inflation with the ability to go uh, into a deflationary state if the other two pieces, this interchange scheduler and allocator, uh, do pick up traction. That, that is possible. Uh, so without really getting into the details of what the new monetary policy looks like, the, the broader long-term goal here is just to cut inflation to a more manageable level. Uh, but diving into the interchange scheduler itself, uh, the scheduler is essentially designed to monetize uh, IBC economic activity and align Atom, so the Cosmos hub, uh, align the value accrual to the Atom token with the growth of the broader IBC ecosystem. And to Matt's point earlier, like Atom's always been advertised as this base currency of the Cosmos ecosystem. But up until now, like it hasn't really seen how that vision was going to form. We just kind of like could see, okay, there's definitely the potential for this to exist. Uh, but these updates are really like lining out exactly what that roadmap is going to look like. Mm. Uh, and so, and Dan, yeah, one quick question for you. And why has, I think the staking rate in the Cosmos ecosystem, especially Adam has been so, has been really high, right? But one of the big thing is they haven't had liquid staking yet. And I think that's a big part of this as well, that they're going to introduce liquid staking. But is the reason why the staking percentage is so high in the Cosmos ecosystem, is that really just because of the airdrops mostly? Like, why, you know, their inflation is higher than other chains. And I, I think if you staked on Atom a lot of times or on the Cosmos Hub, you'd receive airdrops from the new app chains in the Cosmos ecosystem. Like, is that probably the main driver? Right. So the actual staking rate itself uh, isn't tied directly to these airdrop rewards. Like that's just a total separate category. It's like a, a, an actual bonus if you're an Atom staker. Uh, the staking rewards itself is tends to be so high just because the inflation rate uh, itself was so high. Right. Like if you look at this 
uh, if you remember that dashed line from the the visual we had up, um, yeah. you know, like the the security budget is is just so high, and they're printing so much atom to reward uh, the people, uh, the users. Uh, defending the network, securing the network. For some reason, um, like not uh, not a huge portion of the atom in existence is actually staked. So I'm pretty sure the inflation of the network is actually more at like something, you know, ballpark 11, 12%. And uh, the staking APR is more like 18, 19% or 17, 19, 18%. Uh, and that's because, you know, only I believe something like two thirds of atom is actually staked. There's a good amount of, that are, of people who are just holding it on, you know, centralized exchanges, not staking it or uh, somewhere else. Mm. Dan, before you maybe describe just at a high level what the scheduler is, and maybe we can get into MEV and how I think that's like the new narrative. Sam, I'm going to just label you an ETH maxi, even though maybe you're not, but I know you're a big ETH guy and uh, you definitely like Arbitrum. So I'm just curious as a whole, with everything going on in, in Cosmos and Atom right now, how do you feel about that ecosystem? Like, are you intrigued by it? Is it something you're watching? Like, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I'm really intrigued by it. I'm a little bit skeptical of like the adoption of interchain accounts, the kind of better marketing of IBC, um, and the heavy inflation that they're introducing over the next 36 months. I mean, 36 months in crypto is a very long time. So I'm slightly skeptical of that, but I'm also not trying to be a naysayer because a lot of the stuff that Cosmos has done to date has like spread new innovation throughout the industry from people copy and pasting their ideas. Like you have Polygon, which is one of the most successful chains in crypto, and they basically copied Tendermint from 2018, 2019. Um, and then you also have Proof of Stake pioneered by Cosmos, which Ethereum just switched to. So I'm definitely optimistic about the roadmap. I think it's really ambitious, um, but I mean, that's how things are innovated on and improved over time. Yeah, one little last thing on this I think is interesting, and I'm a big Cosmos fan myself of the, uh, of the whole ecosystem, but a lot of people say, you know, other app chains, et cetera, they're adopting this tech stack, and part of that you often hear Binance, like Binance used Tendermint's consensus mechanism, but I'm actually pretty sure Binance has gone through like three changes in their chains, and they ended up adopting an MEV-based chain, and that's actually when they got all their attraction, and it's not because, the, like, or I said MEV, EVM. It's not because the EVM is better or it's more scalable, et cetera, but it's just that's where the contracts were coded in with Solidity. And once they went live with that, that's when you had all the funds go from Ethereum over to this Binance chain. So I just think that's important to remember because people talk about like Binance Tendermint all the time, but that's not actually where the traction um, was gathered. But anyways, Dan, let's jump back and uh, just talk about the scheduler a little bit because I think MEV is a big topic here. Yeah, for sure. So the interchain scheduler, again, this is kind of the goal of this uh this new module is to monetize the uh, interchain IBC economic activity and align atom value accrual with IBC growth. Uh, and so essentially, it's a cross-chain block space futures marketplace where the right to order transactions for uh, designated blocks it will be tokenized and traded and transported over IBC. So what this basically is telling us is that you're, you're like paying for MEV. Um, and MEV, cross-chain MEV is going to be a pretty dynamic market, uh, right? Because you have all these app-specific chains moving assets across different, uh, different chains and communicating with each other, uh, all to, you know, serve the purpose of that specific app, app chain. Uh, but there's going to be some, definitely some ability to front run some of these transactions as you see on other proof of stakes, uh, networks, uh, just like Ethereum. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a good point. I think something with Cosmos that's interesting, it's like a community of chains, even though you know in the future a lot of those are going to be competitors, but you want to have economies of scale. And when you're splitting into these like individual city states that might say in Cosmos, you might lose some of the economies of scale that you have in say like Ethereum, even though I think that's a benefit at time because you also don't have like a clogged chain from like NFT mints of your of like trolls or something. Um so Matt, I'm just curious, what's uh, what's your vision for Cosmos after these updates? So they have this MEV scheduler. They also have an allocator where essentially I think they're trying to make Cosmos or Atom be like the reserve currency of the ecosystem by providing funding. It's trying to really just connect everything back to Atom and make it like the reserve currency is the big point. But yeah, I think we could probably move on after this. But Matt, I'm just curious, what's your what's your view on this? And I guess at the end of the day, I am curious, do you think most values just all going to be related to MEV? Like, is that is that really the driver here? Because that's kind of what it sounds like. Uh, with the scheduler? So I'm definitely no expert in this, but I do think that there is one other pretty big value proposition, which is that, you know, the Cosmos hub. It, so basically in, you know, in the Cosmos ecosystem, the way IBC transfers work um, is you actually have to have a hub, which is a network that multiple chains are connected to. And then those chains can communicate through the hub. And there, that's kind of the original value proposition to the Atom token, Cosmos Atom, Cosmos hub Atom was going to be the main hub for, all the different chains. Um, when Terra Luna launched, it actually was proven that Cosmos Hub wasn't necessarily going to be the main hub and it maybe wasn't even necessary. So it kind of poked a big hole in that original value proposition. So this kind of brings us into like USDC, which I guess I'll put on the, the back burner for one second. But um, there, there are some things happening right now that make me believe that Cosmos could return to this main value proposition of being the hub to all the spokes that our other chains built with the Cosmos SDK. So that's like a lot of value outside of MEV. I do think that MEV will likely be the main value driver for the Atom token, though, especially as USDC launches their own chain that will most likely be secured with interchain security by the Atom validators. Um, this basically means that people looking to do arbitrage or arbitrage uh, like incorrect pricing on Osmosis, which is a decentralized exchange built with the Cosmos SDK, but it's its own chain. Um, you know, if you're looking to print USDC to go take advantage of arbitrage or redeem USDC to go take advantage of arbitrage, you're actually going to have to do that through the hub as you're, uh, you know, where, where that data, where that IBC transfer is going through. So I think there's actually a lot of value there outside of MEV as well. Um, mm. I do think everyone's kind of sleeping on all of these updates, or like fading them, whatever you want to call it. But, uh, you know, for the last... 100 days or so, Adam has had extremely uh, strong price action. It's performed really well against Bitcoin, against ETH, and pretty much everything else. This has slowed down extremely since the announcement of Adam 2.0 on Monday. Yesterday, on Wednesday, USDC announced that they're going to launch their own Cosmos SDK-based chain secured by Adam validators. Um, so this is going to make a native USDC to the Cosmos ecosystem. This is super cool for a lot of reasons. Like some of them I kind of just went over, but like another really cool thing that's going to come with a, a native USDC in Cosmos is most likely Stargate, which is a, a bridge and interoperability layer um, that's built by Layer Zero, actually. I, I'm not going to get too far into it. But anyways, now that USDC is native to Cosmos, it is likely that Stargate will be able to connect Cosmos to you know all these other Layer 1s, uh, mm. although Cosmos isn't necessarily really a Layer 1. But anyways, like you'll be able to transfer your USDC or pretty much any asset from the entirety of the Cosmos ecosystem to, let's say, a different asset on Ethereum. So you can basically in one click through, you know, maybe through SushiSwap's Omnichain exchange, which uses Stargate, or uh, through Stargate itself and USDC, you'll probably be able to in one click transfer your Ethereum to the Atom token. 
I think that's ridiculously cool and, um, you know, very valuable for Adam and the Cosmos ecosystem. And it's mostly just being ignored. Uh, when this news came out, I think Adam actually went down two or 3% in the following hours, which didn't really make any sense to me. Um, likewise, with Adam 2.0 news, it was down five to 10% in the days following, uh, after a very strong price action leading up into it. So in my head, um, there will be a lot of value that's now coming back to Adam and it's kind of being slept on. Additionally, I think that the Cosmos ecosystem is going to see a lot more, um, a lot more builders come and join the ecosystem, like following DYDX. So, so far we've seen like the successful chains that we've seen built on Cosmos have been Cosmos native, meaning developers are starting a new DAP or DAP's not the right word, but they're starting a new project in the Cosmos ecosystem. With DYDX, they saw a ton of value on their current layer two rollup built with Starkware, and they're actually moving to their own app-specific chain built with the Cosmos SDK. There's a lot of reasons for this, but one of the main ones is that they will now capture all of the value to their token holders uh, who will be the validators of the network. This is something that isn't possible with uh, building on another chain, whether it be a layer one or layer two, because uh, if you've ever heard of like the fat, the fat protocol thesis, a lot of value for dApps built on other layers then get sent back to the layer itself as opposed to accruing to the dApp. Hey, Matt, on that real quick. But if DYDX is a layer two, do they, and they're the only app on there, so it's like app specific, do they not realize all of the MEV that would be on there? Like right now, they were using Starkware with that sequencer, which there was no MEV, just like being a fair market. But in the future, when you have L2s that are app specific, couldn't they do the same thing? Wouldn't they be able to realize all the MEV of their chain? So you're saying once layer twos have their own validator sets? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I guess that's a big that's a big question in itself, right? Yeah, there's yeah. pretty much every layer two is working towards getting rid of their central centralized sequencers. Um, just for you know a little bit of background, what that means is there's single parties on Optimism, Arbitrum, Starkware, um, whether it be Starknet or StarkX app specific app specific um, layer twos, layer, app specific rollups. But no matter what, they all have centralized sequencer, meaning one person or one entity who's ordering blocks. So they can extract all the MEV for themselves. They can extract all the MEV um, and give it back to, you know, token holders of whatever that layer two token might be. Uh, or they can just not extract MEV at all, which was the case with UIDX on its own layer two rollup through StarkX. But so like, you know, whether or not they actually are able to move out of that and have an entire validator set is like a question in itself. But if they do, if they do manage to do that, then yeah, I do think that, you know, this, this DYDX might end up actually moving back. Um, it's not impossible, but that's a, that's a big, it's a big if. Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. I think we've probably covered that pretty well. I, I mean, I just want to retouch on the fact that Circle basically came out this week saying they're going to launch, um, USCC on in Cosmos, I think it's its own chain. It's going to leverage the hubs like Interchain Security, ICS. And they also said they plan to launch on Polkadot, Arbitrum 1, Near, and Optimism Networks in the future. So basically sounds like they're going everywhere. Um, I, for one, have no idea why they need the hubs security, considering it's a centralized stablecoin that can just literally run one validator on AWS. But um, does anyone have anything they want to kind of say on that? Or, or do you guys want to move on? Uh, from how I understand it, I mean, it seems like Atom is the only asset that it makes sense for interchain security for for USDC, just because they issue a stable coin. So they like logically pick the most 
the highest market cap coin in the Cosmos ecosystem and borrow security from it. So that, the only choice there is Atom. So I believe that's why they went with that decision. And then also potential revenue opportunities down the down the line. I mean, if they have their own app specific chain, there really is a lot more things they could do and services they could provide on that chain if they so choose to do so. So I think mm-hmm. it's just uh, kind of a new revenue stream and kind of embarking into the more crypto native territory. It's interesting. Gotcha. Yeah, I definitely, definitely agree with that number two. And I think on number one, it, it gets me a little bit in that like they could just have one validator. Like in the future with L2s, for, ex- for example, you don't have to have a decentralized validator set. You could have a centralized sequencer. Um, only if you want to get out of this, are we security or not, is probably where that's going to end up mattering. Because if someone does censor you and you're an L2, you can always just jump off and go to another one as long as there's that like actual backdoor, which don't exist yet with rollups, right? Like they still have the training wheels on. Sam, do you want to touch on this GMX MEV strategy? It's it's too, uh, too big for my lizard brain, but I'd love to kind of hear what, what happened here. Yeah, absolutely. It's honestly not a huge deal. Just a little bit of money was extracted from the strategy. But basically, you can stake GMX tokens and earn escrow GMX and then uh, ETH uh, trading fees. You get 30% of the platform trading fees. But then you also get multiplier points. And they're always paid out at a fixed 100% APR. So basically, if I would stake 100 GMX, let's say, I'd be making ETH and I'd be making escrow GMX tokens, but then I'd also at the end of the year have 200 GMX worth of stake weight. So like you wouldn't actually get 100 extra GMX tokens. This is just like improving your stake weight and therefore your APR. Um, So it's a way to boost your APR over time. And basically the problem that this created was um, it kind of disincentivized unstaking because if you think about it logically, if you're a large holder of GMX that's staked, and you unstake it, then you're not looking to restake it because then your multiplier points are gone. So your your APR starts back at the base APR amount. So they're obviously not going to restake. And then you could say, well, maybe they just want to hold it there and uh, have the the very free liquidity. But that doesn't really make sense because then you're sacrificing a really high high APR. Um, So basically someone made a bot because they assumed that the longer you hold your GMX staked, as soon as you unstake it, you're likely going to sell. And basically the bot would like uh, scan um, the, the basically transactions, look for whales who are unstaking their GMX and then immediately sell GMX tokens and wait for that whale to sell their unstaked GMX and then buy back right after them. Um, and this profit or this strategy was really profitable for the last month and a half. I think it was Polarply on Twitter said that the uh, the entity that made the bot had made 2300 bucks over the last month and a half. So not like a groundbreaking amount, but had a whale who uh, found this strategy, picked it up sooner. It could have been a lot more catastrophic. Um, but he uh, reported it to the GMX team. They're looking into it. It's really a pretty easy fix. You just let people unstake their GMX and sell it in one transaction. Uh, and yeah, they, he got awarded with uh, $500 for reporting the bounty. So I feel like maybe they should have given him a little bit more money considering that could have been... Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of the, the TLDR on that situation. Okay, very cool. It sounds like they need to start teaching. Maybe you'll have classes in high school now where you get to run MEV bots because... It sounds like, you know, we're talking about like all these jobs are being automated away. Well, maybe we need to learn how to write MEV bots because it looks like, and also audit code. Um, I forget last week it was Spencer saying he needs to like, what is the one thing he wish he learned from the situation? It's just like learn how to like read contracts so I can find these little, you know, codes and, and get paid the bounty. So um, very cool, man. Uh, MEV is just so interesting because this is kind of, that kind of links into it. So, all right. 
we need my uh, macro Mike for this, who is gone. But we're going to touch on Jerome Powell and uh, Christine Lagarde a little bit. So uh, there was a conference this week uh, in France. They're both on TV, and there's a few other people that talked as well. Kind of went into Jerome, talked a little bit about how DeFi needs more regulation. There's not a lot of transparency, and they also got into CBDCs. So um, I don't know, Dan, Sam, Matt, anybody want to just give your thoughts on on what they said and, I don't know, biggest takeaways? I'm looking at you, Dan. Yeah, I, I, can, <laughs> I can take a stab at this one. I think all of us hear the word macro and are like, oh, over my head, right? But uh, no, I think this was pretty interesting, right? I mean, essentially, you have politicians and central bank uh, figureheads coming out and saying, you know, we need to regulate, which... To me, like, that's not really a surprise, right? Their job is to regulate. So, like, when they say that's what they want to do, I'm not, like, blown away and shocked. Um, you know, some were – some comments were more interesting than others, right? Like, the uh, Singapore Monetary Authority said, I don't see any redeeming value in cryptocurrencies and their time for reckoning has come. Like, okay. <laughs> there's, there's clear values. Instant settlements just truly undeniably valuable. Um, so, it's, it's hard to say – like what the goal of that is, right? Like essentially, like in, in my view, they're all part of a political game that they need to play, right? So they're, they're saying things for a reason. I don't necessarily think they're saying things that are inherently exactly what they believe. Um, but I think uh, Christine Lagarde's comments around, you know, saying that uh, regulation needs to come in to, you know, essentially protect investors from things like terrorist collapse. Like, I, I think there's no understating the damage that uh, the loss of Terra did to DeFi. Like, that's going to be used as the anchor point for uh, increased regulation in DeFi, when in reality, like, there's probably a simple fix to that. If, like, you did want to regulate something away, okay, algorithmic stablecoins that are purely backed by, you know, an asset that the same protocol is making, okay, that system clearly doesn't work. We've seen that time and time again, and... Tara really put the the nail in the coffin on that one. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, to the lack of transparency comment from Powell, it's just, like, kind of silly to me. It's like, I would bet that more people can track a transaction on Etherscan than that same number of people who can actually thoroughly explain the way our financial system works. So I'm with Dan. I think they just kind of got to talk about regulation. And honestly, like we want regulation. Like I don't think anyone in crypto does not want any regulation. Like we want to protect retail investors. We want to get the institutions involved. So it's like, let's just do it and get on with it and stop talking about it. But let's, let's be fair. Let's be logical. Let's get people who actually know what they're talking about in on these policy discussions. Um, but yeah, that's just going to take time. This is going to be something we talk about for the next three, four years, probably. Yeah, I agree. There's There's been a little bit of a narrative, too, on like permissioned DeFi um, and how institutions might play in that. And also how you might have applications like Aave, which they already have. I think it's Aave Arc. But you might start seeing that from uh, different applications. And I think it's going to be really interesting. We had Ben Foreman on here, who is the creator of Parify, um, and he's a big bull on that. But he's also a bull in saying that you can have these decentralized permissionless applications that we have today, uh, but these permissioned um, sources are going to probably end up being a lot bigger because that's where the, the money's going to largely come from. So anyways, I think it's really interesting. If I was USDC in this scenario, I'm feeling pretty good because you're like, look, everyone's using my stablecoin. Uh, I can actually be regulated, but it's by far, it's one of those zero to one things with a stablecoin. Uh, like USDC that you can actually point to when somebody says like, what's a use case in crypto? Like, like to me, that's just an obvious one. So anyways, there's a clear reason. Like if you just say crypto doesn't have any value uh, or digital payments, et cetera, like it, I think you're just, you're missing out. <laughs> you're in the yeah. dark. You're in the dark. 
Um, and one thing on this, the circle note, like, so there's really no dominant stablecoin in the Cosmos ecosystem at this time. Like if you pull up Osmosis and look at the assets listed, um, you know, there's only 30 million of Axler wrapped, which Axler is a bridge that pa- partnered with Osmosis to bring assets into uh, the Osmosis ecosystem. And so they will wrap USDC from Ethereum and port that into Osmosis. Uh, and so you're taking bridge risk when you're holding this asset, right? You have to trust that Axler will not be compromised and that your $1 on US- of Osmosis USDC uh, will be redeemable for one true uh, USDC, which obviously with the app chain coming into the IBC ecosystem, that's not going to be a problem anymore. Um, but it, like if so, right now there's only 30 million Axler wrapped USDC and about 9 million uh, Axler wrapped DAI. So it's like there's just no dominant stablecoin. And if you look at something like Ethereum uh, or any of the other L1s that have kind of had some DeFi uh, traction and get, get, get gain some traction and uh, gain some users, like you see the relevance and importance of stablecoins, right? Mm-hmm. Like users need a stablecoin to store value. Um, and so, yeah, like I think USDC is making great play here. And this is really just going to expand their market cap in, in a high interest rate environment. They're just absolutely crushing it, right? So right now they have their last attestation. Uh, they had $43.5 billion of short-term U.S. Tre- treasuries ranging from about one to four months. And so let's just call that an interest rate of like 3% uh, in the given environment. Then that's like well over you know $1.2 billion of revenue just from their treasuries. So... Yeah. Expanding that by any capacity is a great move for them. And it'll be interesting to see, like, you know, if they are using the Cosmos uh, hub uh, for, for any chain security, like, how are they going to be incentivizing that? Or is, are, like, Adam Validators going to be, like, doing a favor for that chain in, in order to bring in MEV opportunities? I don't know. Uh, but they certainly have the revenue stream to be, to be paying for security. Yeah. One last thing I'll say on that is Ben Foreman again, who's coming on Bell Curve. He's going to be our episode this Tuesday. Um, he talks about, and you've seen this before on Twitter, but with USDC, they can almost have like CUSDC and it's a rebasing token that actually some of those profits, it's almost like securitizing um, US treasuries. And some of that interest actually goes towards the token, um, which would be pretty cool. And it, it almost seems like in the long run, that might be inevitable. And you can kind of see that with um, MakerDAO, with the PSM, is basically talking to Coinbase about essentially moving some of their USDC out of there to actually earn some revenue because Maker just earns nothing on that, right? It's all going to uh, center. So um, see what's next, guys. I, I think we ought to t- touch on uh, reversible transactions. I think this is pretty interesting. So I think this was either this week or this last weekend. It's like a group of Stanford blockchain researchers. Uh, they posted an article in a Twitter thread explaining their work on bringing reversible transactions to crypto, which to me just that kind of catches your eye because you're like, no, 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 it's... Uh, you can't change anything that's on the blockchain, essentially. Um, they kind of point to all the major hacks that we've had. I don't remember the number, but we've had over like one or $2 billion in hacks already in 2022. And they're saying like, this is strong evidence that we need to have something where you can have reversible transactions. I've got to admit, like, this is embarrassing to say. I shouldn't say it on the podcast, but BlockWorks people get permies when you uh, come to the company. And I've made some transactions in my life, and you always do that little test transaction. Well, uh, I somehow entered the wrong address for my permi, and my permi is sitting there in an untouched contract. So it was a sad, uh, sad day for me. I'm on two week, two weeks into the company, and I haven't told Jason that yet, so he'll find this out. But um, guys, I just want to get like high level thoughts <laughs> on reverse. There's the alpha right there. There's it's, one less permi in circulation. One le- Dude, seriously, yeah, it's our EIP fifteen fifty nine, Garrett. Um, yeah, uh, let's just go. I don't know, Sam. You want to just like, what do you think on this? What's your first thought when you hear reversible transactions? 
Yeah, my first thought was like, this is a terrible idea. But then I like started thinking about it and it seems to kind of make sense for stable coins, I guess, because they can already be blacklisted already. Um, but I was talking with Dan and Matt earlier about this and it's like, okay, well, what happens if you put reversible assets into an AMM and then they're in a pool? It's like, how does, like, if it's against a volatile asset, then that could really wreck everyone who's LPing in that pool if all of a sudden a bunch of stable coins get ripped out of it. So I don't really know, but I also know from personal experience, if I have a very large amount of stable coins, like I am very scared to put all of those stable coins to work in one single pool because then you're just obviously subject to more risk than putting it in maybe eight different buckets. But if I knew that the transaction could be reversed, then maybe I'd feel more comfortable going into that really rogue, like 500% APR, like USDC, USDT pool on like some rogue chain that no one even knows about. So I I see the idea behind it, but then there's a question around like basically their proposed, method is to select like a a judge, uh, like a committee of judges, but it's like, how do you select that? Like that's pretty opaque and against the crypto ethos, like blockchains are supposed to be immutable. Like we just talked about all this um, Flashbot stuff with their relayer and Mev boost. And yeah, I don't know. It's a hairy situation, Matt or Dan, maybe you can kind of give some more light on like the process that's being proposed because I'm not like super caught up on it. And I think Dan proved me wrong here, but Apple was going to have an update where you could like edit text you've already sent. And to me, that sounded like a complete nightmare because, you know, you could send a text, someone responds, and then you change what you actually asked. And then you like send a screenshot of that to somebody. So like so- sometimes reversibility, like if you book the wrong, you know, ticket on a flight, like you want to be able to reverse that, right? Or you just kind of be pissed off. But there's other cases where I can see like you want finality and it's like the best and worst thing of crypto is that everything is final. So yeah, Matt, like give us your thoughts. Yeah, so like you said, um, immutability is kind of, in my head, a good thing. When I first saw it, the cypherpunk in me definitely came out, and I was just like, what? This is this is ridiculous, awful, you know, anti the ethos of crypto. Um, but then I got to thinking about it for a second, and it completely had the same flip-flop that Sam had, where I was like, okay, you know what? I could see a few scenarios where this could actually make sense. Um, you know, reversibility in what's like CDFI protocols, like protocols that aren't completely decentralized, um, where like complete censorship resistance isn't really an expectation. So like USDC and things of that nature, I think that, you know, it could make sense, but as Sam was alluding to, it's like you dump, like, let's say like, you know, you hack, uh, you hack, uh, 30 board apes or something like that. You sell those 30 board apes immediately across, you know, into a couple of pseudo swap pools on OpenSea on Luxrare, you know, you get, you get rid of them quickly. They're gone within 24 hours. You sell them to the highest global bid. So they're just immediately gone. In reality, what you're doing when you like reverse transactions, this, this USDC, or sorry, these board apes. So if you take these board apes back because they're base ER, um, you take these board apes back. Really what you're doing is you're, you're hurting the end, the end buyer. And that person wasn't a nefarious actor. They weren't malicious. They weren't a bad person. The hacker's still getting out, getting away with all their ETH or USDC or whatever they turned it into. Um, so it's like really most of the time you're actually only going to hurt, uh, people that were not acting maliciously. So in my head, it's it's kind of really, uh, I guess, maybe kind of stupid. The Stanford researchers who published it say, well, we know that that's the case, but that's how the law works. You know, the way the law works, it doesn't matter if it's a stolen asset and the, someone buys the stolen asset, it, uh, you know, it sucks for them. But, you know, maybe that's something that's nice about crypto that shouldn't be changed. Um, I don't think it's a great idea to implement reversible transactions. Also, like immutability is 100% a value proposition of crypto. Sure, as a buyer, it's not always the best thing. But as a seller, it is like unbelievable. If you look at, um, you know, 
PayPal, right? Like there's this big, large PayPal scam. I have no idea what the exact value of it is, but uh, basically someone buys something on eBay or on Amazon or whatever, but through PayPal and they call PayPal and they say that it was an unauthorized transaction. Uh, and PayPal is 95%, like the, the far majority of the time they're going to give the person their money back and the seller is going to get screwed. And sellers actually have to price this in. If you own a retail store, you know, you're doing the same thing with credit card fraud. Um, if you own an online business, you're doing it with PayPal and with credit card fraud as well. But you're, you're pricing that in. So assets actually cost more because businesses know that they're going to lose money due to these scams. Um, so as a seller, you know, like crypto's finality, crypto's immutability is 100% a value proposition. Yes, that does lead to but the buyers have it, you know, like there's more power in the side of the seller than the buyer. Um, that's hundred percent true. And then also, you know, if you're not careful with your crypto, you're going to end up with a permie that's just completely lost in the <laughs> abyss. Yeah, but, yeah. um, Sad day. but I guess like what I think that, uh, that's more about education and, you know, creating better user interfaces to deal with the space than it is about, than it is about like creating reversible transactions that are really just going to, screw over the end user and still let hackers get away with their, get away with their funds. Yeah. Dan, I, I mean, those are all great points. Dan, I'm curious, just, do you have any additional thoughts on that? I know one thing when we were talking back and forth, you know, a lot of this per- permission, DeFi, et cetera, then you, a lot of people think in the future, we're going to be interacting with like CeFi front ends that connect to crypto in the back end. So like my one thought is maybe like you have a soft finality on the CeFi front end. So if I would have sent my permi somewhere, I would have had, 24 hours or something to hopefully get it back. And then at times they actually do like a final settlement on L ETH L1. I think that's a little futuristic to talk about. And just, do you have any other takeaways, Dan? Yeah, it's like tough to, you know, you fast forward 10 years from now and like say hypothetically the global financial system runs on and settles on blockchains, right? Like what does the UX look for? Like the, for the individual person and while like people really in the weeds of crypto, like, as Matt so eloquently just described, like we love the finality behind it. Like it's, that's why we're here. And like, we like building on that and, and watching the innovation happen. Um, but for like the average person, is that the best thing for them? Like I can definitely see why the answer is no there. Like, I, I feel like I don't have to like people like make mistakes, you know, that happens all the time. And, uh, people aren't necessarily like equipped to be holding like their own, like, you know, their net worth in a MetaMask wallet or a ledger like that. There's a lot of complications that can come with that. Uh, so, yeah, like I, I kind of see why this would happen. And, you know, to me, like maybe this makes something for something like USDC, like they already have a blacklist fun- function. It's already like essentially tokenized treasuries. They're not trying to be decentralized. So maybe like this reversible transaction kind of makes sense for like, something like USDC. Uh, this is kind of just like a blacklist function with improved UX. Like instead of, like I know Tether, if someone steals a Tether uh, and they can like map it out and like Tether, the company itself can say, okay, like this actually happened. You got your funds stolen. Uh, we will blacklist the stolen funds and then print you new Tether. So that's like essentially the same thing. They're just reversing the transaction instead of blacklisting. So, I, you know, in situations like that, maybe this does make sense. Um, but I think as it was already mentioned, like if you steal funds and then just throw them into an AMM, I don't see how you can really reverse a transaction out of that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It really like breaks composability, but Dan, I want to say you, uh, so far have the word of the podcast with eloquent sounded great. Always trying to look for those. So see if anybody can top them off. Um, let's, let's move on. We have this Apple NFT announcement, which to be honest, I couldn't actually find an announcement. Just saw people talking about this on Twitter. 
Um, so high level, it's basically just saying that I think Apple officially came out saying that you can now have games and like sell your NFTs through the app store. So if you have a game on there, now the problem is a lot of people got like, oh, that's great. They get kind of mad because Apple charges 30% fees, even if you're like a marketplace. So if OpenSea had an app on there, they're trying to charge 30% on every single say NFT that's sold. It's 15% if you're under 1 million. And you see this pain everywhere. I was at a company, actually my last company, we didn't want to go in the app store for a long time because 15% is a lot. Right. Um, but I, I kind of want to skip that unless you guys have strong thoughts on it. I'm more just curious if NFTs come back again, what are your, what are your thoughts on NFTs besides this like PFP? Do you, do you think gaming is going to be this next sector where like NFTs, that's really like going to be its moment? Or does anybody have thoughts on what's next for NFTs beyond just Twitter PFPs? Cause I feel like to a degree that's, that might come back, but it's kind of died out for a little bit. And I feel like if we want to catalyst, it needs to be something new. Yeah, I would say gaming is a big area of interest for me. Like, I just think it takes one AAA game that's just as fun as Call of Duty or Fortnite or something else on console that really connects people and they're able to like talk and catch up with their friends and actually own the assets and move them around into different ecosystems. I think we're a ways away from there. I'm sure we have a lot more Axie Infinity types like boom and busts from now until we get there. But I do think it will be what onboards like 100 million people to crypto more so than DeFi. Like I can't even hardly get my friends interested in DeFi. I'm like, look, I just took out a loan in like two seconds, no credit check. And they're just like, I, I don't care. Like, what, what do you do with that internet money? So I just see gaming as kind of like a gateway drug and NFTs are like the back of that. And then just to touch real quick on the Apple point, I think it's a good thing overall. Like, I think they'll realize, wow, like, like maybe it's next bull run or the bull run after that, but maybe they'll realize, wow, we're losing out on a lot of revenue. We're not letting people pay in crypto. We're, we're taking way too much of a fee, but maybe they'll be like, wow, OpenSea is making a billion dollars a year now. Like maybe we should tap into that. And since they already laid the groundwork, like they can kind of plug and play from there. So I'm happy about it. Not how the implementation is being done, but overall it's good news. Sam, can you give us like a two second update on why unicorns are your favorite NFTs and what you do with your unicorns? <laughs> yeah, all right. I can plug my favorite NFT project. It's called Crypto Unicorns. It's like a Farmville simulation for like anyone who played uh, Facebook Farmville back when they were younger. But they're introducing like little Mario Party game loop type stuff. And they're doing a lot of interesting things by combining like on-chain actions and off-chain actions. So like it's a smooth experience because like you don't have to click like a, like a, a transaction every single time in your MetaMask. Like with DeFi Kingdoms, that was pretty annoying for me. So uh, yeah, I just, and then also they're like really experienced game developers in uh, free to play. So that's kind of what I've been looking for for a while is just like a game developer who has experience, who's made a lot of games and kind of crosses the chasm uh, over to over to crypto. And he's super crypto uh, native. So like he understands liquidity pools super well and like total De DeFi degen, honestly. And uh, that's kind of like what ex exactly what I was looking for. So now I got to hope that we get back to highs and uh, get return from like down 90, 95%. <laughs> Sam, Sam did tell me he paid me a little bit to let him pump his bags, but uh, it is it is hilarious seeing him with his unicorns. Uh, Matt and Dan, I think the unicorn uh, app is actually on Polygon and w we haven't like talked about this before, but Polygon just is absolutely killing it on the BD game. Like I, I can't even name all the partners. I think they've done something with Disney. They had Starbucks the other day. I think they even had another announcement what do you guys think about, honestly, I feel like, what do you guys think about Polygon? Obviously, the BD's team is killing it. Do you think the technology is interesting? Are you, do you think they're like sp spray and pray technique with all these ZK, like different technologies they're working on? I'm just curious, what's your, what's your idea of that? Because you don't hear a lot of people talking about their tech at the moment, but their BD team is incredible. 
So one thing about Polygon that annoys me a little bit is that they sell themselves sell themselves as a layer two, but in reality, they're a Ethereum side chain. Um, they're pretty much their own complete layer one. They have their own uh, risk assumptions. They have their own validator set. So you know they're not relying on the security of Ethereum. Besides, in a very minuscule way. Um, anyways, like that that's always like annoyed me a little bit. It kind of I think it confuses the masses. But like you said, their business development team is just you know killing it all over the place their their partnerships their integrations their funding you know project after project everyone wants to integrate with them um and i think that in reality in crypto fundamentals sometimes at least historically have been more uh valuable than fundamentals so at the end of the day i think that you know polygon could be a real competitor also sam wrote this amazing 10-page report going in through all the like they're testing out so many different technologies and you know are they all going to succeed probably not but if they even manage to have one or two of these new technologies they're testing out succeed with uh mostly zk zkevm would be the one that i'm most interested in um i think that they are well set to have both the fundamentals and the fundamentals to be a good project i definitely don't own any matic myself i'm not really interested in purchasing any but I, it's uh, definitely a token i'm going to keep an eye on and then also yeah. i just wanted to add real quick like side note for the nfts um we had like a not like an argument, but a little bit of controversy in the research analyst group chat yesterday surrounding music NFTs. Um, and just like, that's something I'm interested in. I think it's a cool space, uh, specifically like Royal, uh, where you get the royalties by owning, you know, you own a portion of the song from this NFT and then you get royalties based on it. I think it's a really cool space. I think there's a lot of regulatory concerns and, you know, most of my coworkers completely disagreed with me. Maybe I was going left curve, uh, which is not always a bad idea. But anyways, yeah, I just thought I'd, I'd throw that in there. Yeah, of course. Send it to zero. <laughs> you know what? Cooper Terrily came on, if I if I said your name right, Cooper Trupa, um, came on Empire the other day. And honestly, I thought it was really convincing too. I mean, I, I, I do love physical records and I, I don't know how this can like play up with that. But if everything is going digital, I don't even think there has to be some type of utility attached besides you just love that artist. So anyways, I think it's interesting. Also, uh, I do like Polygon as well, but none of this is financial advice, of course. Um, Dan, do you have anything to add on that or what else are you thinking? No, I think, I think Matt, uh, really covered it all there. I think, uh, the spray and pray method, as you called it is, is interesting. And like, you know, why not? If you got the resources to do it, uh, you know, I kind of like, I like their approach. It's, it's kind of unique to what we've seen other, uh, platforms try to do. Uh, so yeah, I, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm not a Matic bull. I, uh, I'm not a hater either. I just, just kind of neutral on it. Like, you know, I spend most of my time in DeFi, so I'm basically sitting in Ethereum mainnet of vast majority of the time. Yeah, no, it makes sense. The one thing I would add on the Polygon thing where Matt says like, yeah, like they market themselves as an L2, so I don't really love that. If there was an EVM compatible chain that would have launched in 2017 and marketed as well as Polygon and like completely gone away, like imagine if Avalanche launched in 2017 with their C chain. Like they totally could have just stolen a ton of market share, a ton of developer activity, ton of users, like fees, et cetera, and really made a robust competitor to Ethereum. But like Polygon and their team decided to stick by the ethos of Ethereum and they continue to try and scale it today. So I feel like, yes, I do understand the hate for the marketing, but at the same time, like it could have been a worse outcome for Ethereum. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, I feel like there's no other ecosystem that has that great of PD and business development. And that's going to be such a huge deal. I mean, tech, you always say tech comes first, right? It comes first, especially in crypto. But then the day, like you have to grab 
capture and like keep attention and they look like they're doing a pretty good job at it so honestly you probably i'm expecting to see even DAOs come up that like their specialty is like hey we help out other protocols with their business development and marketing because and in, in real life and traditional businesses that's huge but that's not something you see in crypto yet that i would expect um let's let's move on i think we can pretty much wrap up unless you guys have anything i just say do Kwan seems to be on the run um there's been issued a red notice but he says he's like sitting in his room in Singapore. So not really sure what's going on there. I don't think there's a lot of to take away. We've kind of already talked about what Terra's done to the ecosystem to some degree. Um, any of you guys want to talk about anything else before we close up? I think we're good. I appreciate you having us on, Garrett. Yeah, I got to get one. I mean, you got to plug something. What's uh, what's like either a report or something we should be looking at? And why why should I care about BlockWorks Research? Um, so like BlockWorks Research, we, as BlockWorks Research analysts, we provide investable insights that you're not going to find elsewhere. So basically, we spend a lot of time in Discord's governance forums, um, really on-chain, just like trying to get data and tracking transactions, um, tracking wallets. And our goal is to basically beat crypto Twitter to narratives, token updates, governance updates, and get them to our subscribers before anyone else um, would. Basically, all the information we're providing, its goal is to be investable. So whether or not it's something to be good for a token, bad for a token, good for an ecosystem, bad for an ecosystem, maybe potentially a narrative that's going to form or seems to be forming. So like me and Sam just did a, a whole series on uh, decentralized perpetuals where we covered DYDX and GMX. We call the incumbents and mycelium um, and a couple other. And, then, you know, we have, we have more reports coming out, too. But anyways, like uh, BlockWorks Research really is like an, a required uh a required tool if you're constantly investing in crypto assets. Not only do we streamline the information for you, but we're going to probably provide information that you wouldn't see elsewhere, like you would not see on crypto Twitter or in your Discord group or whatever. Um, right now, we're really revamping our data. So we're going to have some of the best data, like some of the coolest charts in space that you really wouldn't find elsewhere again. Um, and yeah, definitely subscribe to our newsletter. We just made the BlockWorks Research newsletter free. It's a daily newsletter that comes out at noon Eastern Standard Time every day. And we pretty much just cover anything interesting that went over the last, like that happened over the last 24 hours, cool stuff, funny stuff, and best of all, um, stuff that might be able to make you some money or you might be able to help in, uh, use in your investing, even though, of course, not financial advice. Yeah, Matt, I feel like I'm in high school and you have like a note card, like, you know, like in your sock or something that you just read from. <laughs> that, 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 you just killed it. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just, I'm just bullish BlockWorks research. Uh, I like talking about it. Love it. Well, I'll include all the links in the show notes. Definitely check that out. Follow them on Twitter. Honestly, their tweet threads are really great too. They're always just like six to eight tweets, but it really captures and makes everything easy. Anyways, I'm going to stop pumping their bags. Um, obviously, hit subscribe, whether you're on Empire or Bell Curve. If you're on Empire and you haven't listened to Bell Curve or vice versa, uh, give it a listen. And yeah, this is a lot of fun, guys. Yeah, I appreciate it. Really enjoyed it, Garrett. Thanks for Thank having you. us. Sweet. See you next time.